Good morning. We are continuing in our sermon series on the hope of heaven. And this morning we look to God's word uh, as we explore the topic of the resurrected body or our future resurrected bodies. We're going to look to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 35 through 49, but it's helpful as we look to this passage to to have a bit of a framework for, for Paul's writing on this topic. <clears throat> uh, in, the, in the broader context of the whole of chapter 15, Paul is responding to some questions, well, quite frankly, in the whole letter, he's responding to questions and problems that existed in the church in Corinth. Um, and in the context of chapter 15, he's responding to some uh, questions and problems uh, regarding the resurrection there were two general problems that the people had in Corinth. On one hand, there was a denial of the resurrection, denial of our future bodily, body, bodily resurrection. We would be bodily resurrected. How's that? We'll try that. Um, and, and second, there was some confusion over, over the details of the resurrection. What would the resurrection entail? So, as Paul has dealt with already earlier in chapter 15, this, this denial of our future resurrection, he did so by rooting our resurrection in the irrefutable reality of Jesus' own resurrection. Here in this passage, he's talking about the confusion around those details about the resurrection. And here, too, he points to Jesus as the model for our resurrection. You see, in both. In both his, his affirmation of the resurrection and in his description of that resurrection, he is pointing to and preaching Christ. Pray that we do the same as we look to the inerrant and infallible word of God. When someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come, you foolish person? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. 
The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust. And, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me. Father, <clears throat> there is much that you have for us in this word. And I pray that you would, you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive the beautiful truth that you have us. And through it, would you point us to Jesus? Do this we ask. In his name. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Last Battle, the, sort of the conclusion of the Chronicles of Narnia series, he, he points to a beautiful, profound theological truth using story. That beautiful, profound theological truth is that the new heaven and the new earth, it is the real earth. It is our real home. And our resurrected bodies are the real bodies. See, in, in that book, there's a scene where Lucy and, and Edmund and, and Peter, they, they enter into Aslan's country, which is Lewis's portrayal of heaven. But as they enter in, they, they have this sense of mourning for, for Narnia, where they think they have left. As they make their way, things begin to look familiar. There's a familiar shape to the terrain, and, and all of a sudden, far sight, the eagle takes off and soars above to get, get a look of the place, and the eagle comes back, returns, and says, we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see this is the real Narnia. At that point, the narrator takes over in the story and describes Narnia, the real Narnia, as a deeper country, more real and more glorious than they already knew. See, Lewis is using story to illustrate the true story. The new heaven and the new earth is a real home. It is the fulfillment of God's redemption of all things including his redemption of place. And our resurrected bodies, they are the real bodies. They're the fulfillment of his redemption in us, of his redemption of our earthly bodies. And so there in that place, the new heaven and the new earth, with those real bodies, we will be with Jesus. That truth as we find it in Scripture, is meant to build a sense of deep longing, of, of glorious anticipation within us. But the question is, what do we do with that longing? For many of us, it breeds curiosity. The Corinthians asked Paul the question, uh, how are the dead raised? What kind of, with what kind of body do they come? Paul's response to the question might seem a bit insensitive. You foolish person. 
foolish person implies it was a foolish question. Why was it foolish? Was this question arising from a place of denial about the resurrection? Well, certainly there were some who were denying the resurrection, but Paul has already dealt with that denial earlier in chapter 15 by pointing to what was the irrefutable reality of Jesus' own resurrection. He pointed to all of the eyewitnesses who had seen him after his death on the cross. But now here... I believe he is dealing with this sense of curiosity, a curiosity over the details of the resurrection. Now, understand that on some level it's appropriate for us to be curious, but what's behind the curiosity? Paul, or more appropriately, the Lord our God, doesn't give the the specifics to all the details that we want to know. You know the question. What age would our bodies be in glory? Will we wear clothing? What will the houses be like? What will we wear? Will we sleep? The the text doesn't give us the specifics about the body. No, there are not scientific answers here, but instead, Paul seems to be saying, the Lord seems to be saying, your questions are too small. What's behind your question? Some of us want control. And we figure that if we know the details of what's to come, then we will have some sense of control. Anna and I took a a short uh, trip uh, the end of this week. We went to a new place. I needed the GPS to get me there, but it it bothers me when I'm totally dependent upon the GPS. I want to know what is ahead of me. Because if I have to take it moment by moment, turn by turn, then I don't have control want the details of what's to come so I can get that control back. For some of us, for many of us, we want the knowledge of what is to come. And and knowledge is good. We are using that knowledge for control. Then we are living with a small God and a small view of heaven. Others of us are clinging to the things of the world. We think to ourselves, heaven sounds great, but I really want to make sure that I've got steak in the new heavens and new earth. Or perhaps it's deeper issues. We wrestle with what Jesus says about marriage in the new heavens and the new earth, and we long for that. And as we wrestle with these questions about the details of heaven and what is there, there's maybe a sense in us of trying to cling to what we have in this earth. But behind that is really the question of, is God good? Can I trust Him with His heaven? In the text, rather than satisfying our desire for every detail, this passage, I believe, is intended to inspire Paul. Earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul writes, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This foolish question that he speaks of, 
the question that arises out of a small view of what God has ordained. And so in verses 36 through 41, he seems to to deal with that first question of how. How are the dead raised? But he doesn't answer it by, by providing mechanics. No, he speaks to an order of magnitude, not size. The seed is not only smaller than the plant, but it is of a different kind. Though they are connected, there's a different sense of glory in the fully grown plant than in that seed. But God decides. The Lord is emphasizing that in verse 38, but God gives it a body as He has chosen. God declares the glory of both the seed and the plant. And the how. The Word is telling us that there is going to be a variety, both in the form of the bodies and in the glory that they will possess. Not all will be alike in the new heaven and the new earth, but all will be glorious. And that glory will be given a kind by God. We see it in this description of the seed and the plant. We see it in the description of the earthly and the heavenly bodies. When you hear heavenly in this text, Think celestial, the stars, the sun, the moon. Their glory is all glorious, but it is, it is different. And there's a glory of the, the resurrection that is different both in terms of kind and magnitude than the glory of the earthly. This is not meant to satisfy the details again, but it's meant to inspire awe in God's plan. He goes on to speak to the question of what kind. They asked what kind of body we have in the resurrection. And and Paul gets at it in verses 42 through 44. He, He writes there, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. We may not have all of the details that we want here, but he does give us a glorious framework with which we can think about the resurrected body. There are sets of contrasts here that he is presenting. Speaking of the body that is sown and the body that is raised. The body that is sown is perishable. The body that is raised is imperishable. The body that is sown is is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor or glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Explore these sets of contrasts. Get an idea, an understanding of what God has in store for us who are in Christ. This first set of of contrast deals with the nature of the body. Earthly body, the body that is sown, is is perishable. We know that, but we can think about the perishability of the body in a couple of ways. The first way is in terms of decay. 
We think of decay of the body both in terms of age and, and stress. Perhaps you have seen them, but there are a set of haunting photographs in the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. that document the, the impact of age and stress on Abraham Lincoln as he led our nation through the Civil War. They capture the aging process that is heightened and accelerated for him, no doubt, under the stress he experienced, but it shows the perishability of the body in chronological order. The body's perishable. But it's not just decay. It's also disease. If Decay is the, the gradual work of time. Disease is, a, is an attack. And many of us in this body are experiencing the impact of disease at this very moment. Systematically shutting our bodies down and we experience through disease physical and emotional pain, knowing that something is not right, but understand in the pain, particularly the emotional pain that we feel associated with disease, there is in our hearts the seed of eternity. It is planted there by God. That, that emotional pain is evidence that we're created in the image of God. That we know this disease, we know this decay is not as it should be. But in glory, the perishable will put on the imperishable. And the imperishable body will be immortal. That immortal body will swallow up the bodily effects of the fall. There will be no more decay. There will be no more disease. We will have vibrant, lasting bodies. Freed. The impact of the fall. That's the first set of, of contrasts that we find here dealing with the nature of the body. But there's a second set dealing with the status of the body. The body that is sown in dishonor is raised in glory is raised in honor. Dishonor is ridicule. It's an issue of shame. We know when we look back to Genesis 3 that in Adam and Eve's first sin, what was their first act after that sin? It was, it was to hide. To hide and, and to sow fig leaves to cover their bodies. It was a figurative and a very literal form of hiding, and shame has reigned ever since. That shame is a shame that we experience both externally and internally. Many of us, at least the ladies, struggle with body image. And the world around us gives a fallen framework for glory. A fallen framework that none 
can live up to, and yet we hear it, desire the affirmation of those around us, we actually buy into that framework. But it's not just the world around us. It's the unrelenting inner voice of shame. Those whispers that we're not enough. We don't live up. We're lacking in beauty and in form. Is the body of dishonor. And it is the ever-present effect of the fall, but in glory. Oh, in glory, our bodies will be raised in glory, made perfect by God. Bodies will be like the body of Jesus, and we will finally be free from the voice of shame, not because we have the body that we have always longed for, we will have the body that God gives. And in that redemptive history, we will embrace His good gift. Long for this? Do you long for that freedom? It is coming for those who are in Christ. And her voice is yet another reminder that things are not as they should be. But that voice reminds us that our God has set eternity in our hearts. Third, there's a contrast that deals this time with abilities. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. Now, I don't for a second think that this is saying that in glory our bench press will double. It might. That's not the issue, as great as that will be. He was dealing with limitations and the removal of those limitations. Now, yes, there's still going to be variety in the new heavens and the new earth. Not all will be the same. There will be varying forms of strength and power because God gives unique gifts to His beloved children. But in glory, those abilities, those gifts will no longer be, be marred by weakness. They will be marked by power. And that leads us to a fourth distinction that, that is contained here in the Word of God and in chapter 40, in verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Not spirits, not a ghost. Resurrection bodies are more substantial. No, the spiritual body is not an immaterial body. It is more physical than the one that we have today. What I believe this text is pointing to is the spiritual body that will be animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Resurrection body with all its physicality, with all its glory, with all its power will be led fully. Body and soul by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit will have full sway in our lives, will fully manifest Himself in and through us, and there in glory we will be free from the shackles of sin, free of that inner voice of shame, free of the, the hideous hiss of Satan that is causing us to question 
life that the Lord has given us. Oh, there. We will be spirit-filled and spirit-led. Paul is describing the resurrection body and summing it all up by saying that the natural body is in Adam. That's what he means when he says the man of dust, in Adam. But the spiritual body is raised, is in Christ, the man of heaven. In other words, in glory, our union in Christ will be made complete. That's the glory of what is to come. And so we are to wait for it with patience, with anticipation. Friends, in, in Christ, we live in what theologians describe as the now and the not yet. In the now, we are citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And we live under His rule and reign and are recipients of the blessings of the kingdom. And yet, in the now, blessings and our obedience to His rule and reign, they are shadowy. They are they are but a foretaste of the glory that is to come. But then in the new heavens and the new earth, in the not yet, the kingdom of God, we will experience the blessings of the kingdom fully and bodily. We have to train our minds to think in this context of the now and the not yet, to experience the blessing now and to long for it fully. The scripture talks about this, this contrast. Elsewhere, Paul speaks of the blessings that are to come when, when the kingdom will be complete. If you were to look over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, we read, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Do you hear the now and the not yet and the hope of glory, the hope of the Christ body? That's Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But we look over to Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. And there we read, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope, for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The first fruits of the Spirit of the, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that those who are in Christ have received. But the first fruit means it's the appetizer. It's the guarantee of what's to come. And so then he lays out this framework of, of our adoption in Christ, waiting eagerly for that adoption. He ties that adoption to the redemption of our bodies. If you're in Christ, you're already adopted into Christ. It means you're already a full 
member of the family of God, given the blessing of addressing the God who is holy, 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 Abba Father. We have that blessing now as we are adopted into Christ in the now, but our adoption will be made complete. We put on the bodies, the glorious, resurrected, tangible, physical, powerful bodies that come those who are in Christ, who are in the family of God. So we wait. We wait for patient, with patience. But how do we wait? Most of us are not good at waiting, much less waiting with patience. How? Well, we remind ourselves of the glory to come. And we live now in light of that glory. We consider the physical bodies that are awaiting us. We consider the physical bodies that we have now. And consider the implications for how we treat them. Understand that we glorify Christ by the way we treat our physical bodies. On the one hand, that means we fight back the shame culture that is outside and on the inside. And fighting back the shame culture begins with an acknowledgement that what God has created is good. The voice of the world loudly proclaims a particular form of beauty and assigns worth to certain body types. That is not the voice of the Spirit of God. How do we wait patiently? We train our hearts to hear the Spirit of God and not the Spirit of the world. And then we must listen. But not only must we listen, we must be that voice for others. We must be that voice for our loved ones who are struggling with these issues of body shame. It also means that we recognize the body is not an afterthought for God. So it should not be an afterthought for us either. Physical exercise and a, and a healthy diet, they matter. Not because we want to look good in a bathing suit. But because we're called to steward what God has given us for His glory. And that stewardship is an act of our spiritual worship that reflects our understanding of His creation. So we wait with patience by stewarding well. But we also wait with excited anticipation. We talked about why we need to hear about Jesus' resurrection. We talked about this last week, that Jesus' resurrection is the centerpiece of our faith, that, is, that in His resurrection... He validated, he authenticated all of his words, all of his deeds. But also, in his resurrection, he served as the seal of victory. The victory that is to come fully and finally over death. That's why we need to hear about Jesus' resurrection. But we also need to hear about our own resurrection body. 
Why? Well, our resurrection body is vindication of God's love for us. Our resurrection body is a vindication for His love for us, and it is the hope of that resurrection body is a reminder that He has not forgotten you, no matter how much you struggle and groan on this earth. But secondly, a resurrection body is the seal of our enjoying the victory that is to come. In glory, we're not going to flitter around on the clouds playing harps like little Casper the ghosts. In Christ, we will spend eternity in a redeemed physical earth that is the real earth with imperishable, honorable, powerful bodies, fully given over to the Spirit of God and freed of the weight of sin. That, friends, is worth getting excited about. But ultimately, ultimately the greatest joy, the greatest anticipation of the, of the new heavens and the new earth where we will receive these resurrection bodies is not about our self Gratification, as much as the Lord has ordained pleasures forevermore. No, it is in sharing our physical bodies with Jesus. I spent time recently uh, talking about marriage with some couples who were preparing for their wedding. And I've reflected on that experience, and I've reflected on the experience that I have seen and witnessed in most brides. I spent a lot of time preparing for that day. They want to buy the right dress. They take time and effort to do their hair just so. But in the best of the weddings, in the best of the marriages, the truest preparation on the part of the bride is not for herself. It is an anticipation of that moment when the doors in the back open and she presents herself to her groom. You see, all brides are beautiful, but their beauty and their glory is meant for the groom and in the glory of the new heavens and the new earth our beauty will be made full. And that is assured by our groom. Glory. We will present our beauty not merely for our own self-enjoyment. We will present our beauty to our groom and find delight in his reception of us. Jesus will be our greatest joy. Because Jesus is the Lord of glory. And a fundamental aspect of his making all things new is his work of making his bride whole in soul and in body and gathering her to himself in glory. If you're in Christ, then by faith, you are his bride. This promise of a resurrected body, it is meant to our excitement for the new heaven and the new earth with him. And so let us wait for him with patience and with anticipation. Lord Jesus, your, your word, your promise is glorious. 
And as much as we long for the resurrection body, we long to be with you in that body. So I pray that you would plant this hope, this promise of joy in our hearts and bring it to fulfillment in your good and perfect time. All things we ask in your name. Amen.